Hi everybody, this is Michael Collard, the Curious Quant. Today I'm going to be speaking with Paul Wilmot, who is perhaps one of the better known educators in uh, finance and quant finance specifically. Uh, for the last 15 years, Paul has had an incredible influence on the quantitative community globally. He's designed courses, he's written books, he's given a numerous number of lectures, and he's kind of been, a, I suppose, a, a role model for mathematics and the application of mathematics in risk modeling, uh, in, uh, in derivative pricing, and, and some, several other fields. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Paul about those kinds of models. And then the conversation takes a really interesting turn where we really start to push and explore into what AI and technology could mean for our society. Uh, and I'm really excited about that avenue, but, but it's an unusual avenue. So I hope you can come with us for that. Um, there's a little bit of noise at the beginning with Paul. Uh, at the beginning, he's sitting in Hawaii in this gorgeous garden. Um, but please bear with us because I think that the voice quality improves much during the podcast. So I hope you can join us. Hi, everybody. Welcome. This is the Curious Quant, Michael Collo. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Paul Wilmot from Hawaii in this case. Well, welcome, Paul. Hi. <laughs> Yes, from sunny Hawaii. From sunny Hawaii. Well, usually I make fun of my northern, um, sort of northern equator guests by talking about how beautiful Sydney sun is and then contrasting it with the terrible weather. But I can't do that with you, unfortunately, Paul, in this case. No, we are, we are just about north of the equator, but you'd, you'd never guess. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me today. And you know, as is usually customary, um, I, I love to ask my guests a little bit about their background and, and what kind of brought them here and also kind of, you know, share something kind of quirky or funny about them. Um, so, Paul, um, I understand that in your case, I suppose you've had an amazing career in quantitative finance. And, and for those listeners that haven't heard of Paul before, I think he's certainly, I'm, I'm going to sort of embarrass you for a second, but he's certainly one of the icons of uh, kind of quantitative research and quantitative finance as somebody who really understands this field and has taught it to so many people in so many different places um, and, and kind of written about it and published on it and so on. So, so I'd love to hear a little bit about how you came to be in this position at the moment. How, how did your career kind of progress? Okay. Yeah, I quite like Icon. Yeah. How does one become an Icon? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it, it all started. Well, I, I, I never know how to describe myself to at dinner parties. Not that I go to many dinner parties, but if I were to go to a dinner party, then how would I describe myself? I, so, sometimes I say I'm a, a mathematician, but then I, sometimes I say I'm a, a business person because although I've been doing mathematics, I guess sort of professionally in some sense since university uh, for many, many decades, I've also kind of think of myself as a, as a small businessman. <laughs> um, I think that's, that, that's one of those places where it's very important where you put the hyphen. Uh, it's a small business rather than a small man. Not that I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm kind of average. A, 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 average. a man of the small business. That's right. That's right. Um, very underrated, the hyphen, I find. <laughs> uh, the, uh, so I've, I've been running small businesses since I was about nine years old. And it just it so happened that um, um, after becoming a mathematician, that I put the two things together, I, I, mathematics and, um, and uh, business. So even when I was a, a graduate and then as a postdoc, I was doing various businessy things like consultancy uh, and also juggling. I should say, I, I mustn't forget that, that I am 
I was once upon a time um, a professional juggler. Uh, I, I'm probably one of the few quants who has an equity card as well. Uh, so I've, running businesses, the businesses became mathematical, consultancy. Uh, this is all prior to getting into quantitative finance, uh, doing consultancy in all sorts of different applicable or industrial mathematical field. So it wasn't it was anyone who had some industrial process and they wanted to do a little bit of mathematics to understand how does something work, then they, uh, I, I might help them out. And it's certainly a lot cheaper to, to, to hire a mathematician to model a turbine blade, for example, than it is to build a new turbine blade. So but then I, I was introduced to derivatives in the late 80s. Uh, I took on some students doing research, and then over the, the years, I started to drop the, the various um, industrial and applicable mathematics and did more and more on quantitative finance. And that, again, there was always a business angle, so it would be either self-publishing a book or giving training courses or software. Um, yeah, so, so that's sort of my my background, and I've, I've tried to do as many different things as possible. The, the, um, that doesn't just mean mathematical finance. If, if you have any crazy plan, then come to me and I'll say, yes, I'm in. Um, and that's it's kind of my philosophy of life is to just have fun. And, and, and this has brought, clearly brought you to this podcast, I see. Exactly. This is the culmination <laughs> of this. <laughs> this is where all we icons gather. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The iconic podcast of Quants. I mean, I have to kind of caveat the word icon here, obviously with an asterisk to say icon of a certain population or certain part of the population who enjoys okay. data. Okay, I, I guess. Statistics. I guess. But yeah. hey, listen, I mean, it's better than no icon at all. So we'll, we'll, we'll take it. So I, I think between this idea of the professional juggler uh, and under, undercover investigator and part-time ukulele player, certainly kind of a, a wonderful kind of color, colorful character around what has been your core, which is around mathematics and the applications of mathematics. So I'm going to jump in straight into a kind of a tricky question. So I, I come from a more of a kind of finance PhD background as a, rather than a pure science background. So I've often dealt with the app in... in imprecise application of statistical models to difficult problem sets with limited data and limited understanding behind it. And I'm just kind of wondering, when you go into this world of derivatives, which has elements of mathematics, but I would still say that they're kind of being applied to a particular domain field, which, you know, is is not really, you know, clean or nice or cut or whatever else. How have you kind of have you done that? I mean, I understand that a lot of the credit models, for example, you have some thoughts on as to how good those models are, how they've been predicated, how they've been used. How would you grade, I suppose, the financial services industry as a place for the application of mathematics? Okay, that's a, that's a good starter question. I th I'm very lucky in having had the background that I've had working in different applied fields. So I've, I've seen good models and I've seen bad models. I've seen quantitatively accurate models and I've seen toy models. And so I know I've got a pretty good instinct for for where, for the, the sort of level of accuracy, let's say, that you can expect from any model in any particular field. And also a good instinct for uh, 
what matters, what level of accuracy do you necessarily need? And I'd say quantitative finance, it's, it's more accurate than some fields, but a heck of a lot less accurate than others. So that, may, that, that, that does have some effect when it comes to the models that you choose. And you want to choose models, I think you always want to choose models that are kind of transparent, understandable. Uh, they don't have to be incredibly accurate, but you, you want models that aren't going to blow up in your face somehow. Um, yeah, you don't, you, you don't want models that are, that are rubbish either, either. But then there's the business aspect of things. It depends what you're trying to do. If you're in the business of, of selling something, you've got to add on some profit margin. But then the, the, the question becomes things like how much profit margin can you add on without affecting your business? Um, and is that within or outside the margin of error? So there are all sorts of, it's not just about the mathematics. The business side of things is, is very important. And I, I, I've seen some fantastic models, and I've produced some of them myself, um, but nobody would touch them with a barge pole because of the complexity or because of their strangeness. And that's another aspect of things that, that you, you don't, if you're working finance, as long as you keep your nose clean, then you'll, you could, you know, make a decent living. You could even make a fortune potentially. Uh, but you've got to keep your nose clean. And part of that might be in just using models that people are comfortable with. You don't want to necessarily draw attention to yourself. Uh, so there's so many different angles to all of this. Wow. I, I, I felt a pang of pain in my stomach as you said that, Paul. Physical pain. There's this notion that, um, you know, the, uh, the idealistic science of modeling the world and outcomes, uncertain outcomes in the world, being so heavily twisted by these kinds of agency uh, considerations, which I agree with, so I'm not going to disagree with you on this. Um, and I think, you know, I'll, I'll kind of challenge you to the following statement and see whether you think it makes any sense at all, uh, which is that I, I would suggest that over the last couple of decades, we have some incredible scientific minds come into the field of finance, whether it's asset management or otherwise, from physics, from statistics, from mathematics, from biology even, and I would say that today, the conversation and discourse in finance is still really non-scientific for the most part. It's storytelling for the most part. It's feel-good factors. It's, as you say, keeping within the crowd, but speak slightly ahead of it, but not too far ahead that you're too different to it. So I would actually suggest that quantitative sciences as a discipline, as applied to finance, has kind of failed to make a significant dent in this industry. Do you think I'm being too harsh? Oh, yeah, definitely being too harsh. I, 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 it may be the case that we've got as far as we can, but we've still come quite a long way, I think. Certainly in terms of modeling derivatives, I mean, it's possible we've, we've gone too far because there are too many derivatives. Um, I, it's, and to some extent, it's, the, it's, it's, how, it's, it's people not knowing which models are good, which models are, are not good, or which ones can be taken seriously, which ones can't be taken seriously. If people knew that... Uh, then maybe people would focus more on the contracts which are a little bit safer. But then there's, there's so much, as I keep saying, there's, there's so much money floating around. You, you, if somebody wants to trade something which you haven't got a model for, what are you going to do? Um, if you're an employee of some bank, some hedge funds, uh, then you've, you've got to give an answer that you've got to say, yes, we, we can model this, we can trade this. I, I get the impression you can't say, no, we can't because our models aren't good enough because 
then the the trader or whoever will say, well, make them good enough. Um, and to some extent, that it, it involves coming up, up with models which which where you, you can't see the the errors. As I said right at the start, that having models where you can see where the problems lie, that's ideal. But it's not ideal if you're trying to, if you're a trader, you want a, a model that says there's no risk at all. We, you know, trade in you know, as much as you can. Um, there's a lot of different, so many different angles to this and people pulling in different directions. But I wouldn't say that the, the maths side of things has, has failed necessarily. But um, so, so I, I take the point that there's uncertainty about model validity. So if you think about the problem of what kind of things are forecastable and what kind of things are not forecastable, and so this idea that you have a model for to forecast a particular derivative instrument with a particular kind of structure, and then that model has a certain level of error or certainty or uncertainty relative to another kind of problem, a different kind of model. I mean, how do you distinguish, I suppose, aside from the trading requirements that you do on a trading desk, is there any other way for you to distinguish um, whether a model is kind of better at solving a problem or not that is kind of agreed upon in this industry? I guess it boils down to what assumptions go into a model. The, the more unre unrealistic the assumptions, the less you can trust the model. And that's got to be kind of obvious, hasn't it? And then, then, then a child could, you know, if you see some of the, the assumptions that go into some credit models, for example, about correlations and things, then people must know that's not going to be a good model. Um, I think that's that's going to be a key thing. I'm not sure how you, you say that um, you have a a science background. We both we both have a science background. I don't know how much that that does blind people into thinking that oh, you know, it's quantitative finance. It's got the word quantitative in it. Therefore, it must be correct somehow. Yeah, um, I, I, I think I think there's definitely a pretense of knowledge that that goes into the idea of science, right? So from the, the LTCM days where you had people, you know, with like equations and that was seen to be you know, the truth, and therefore the truth was undeniable. Of course, it was a prediction and there had forecast errors and so forth. So I think we often jump to this notion that just because it is data and it's called science something, therefore it must be kind of much more accurate than it really is. And What's going on? Oh, that was strange. Um, this brings us to our next point, which is around the idea that um, in a world where we had uh, these kind of, let's say, quantitative models for derivative pricing and for risk forecasting, and then I guess we've got factor models, which kind of do, um, you know, equity-based factor risk forecasting and, and you know, examinations and that kind of stuff, which all still rely upon this mean variance framework to a large extent. So all the optimizations that happen off the back of portfolio construction rely upon correlations, covariance matrices, etc. I mean... Is there a better way for us to forecast risk, especially for different horizons? Than well, the the trickiest part of all that, I think, is the is the correlations. Modeling correlations is just it's just a complete nightmare. Uh, normally, I I have solutions to problems. The solutions may not be very elegant. They may not be at all practical, but. And in some sense, they might be solutions, but I have no solution as yet for the problem of correlations, correlations which behave well for a while and then annoyingly do the exact opposite of what you'd assume, just at the most inconvenient time. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I don't know what to replace those with. 
<coughs> there is, there is, um, but then it, it's, it makes it makes the subject more fun, doesn't it? To have these <laughs> these things, which are, you, you know, you, you you mustn't confuse um, obstacles and opportunities. People often get those two things the wrong way around. Uh, any any problem to me, I think, is an opportunity because, well, if you can solve the problem, you're you're ahead of the game. It's one of the reasons why it always amazes me that economists have this thing called physics envy. I don't know whether it's true or not, but you do get the impression that they do like to talk about things called laws, which are clearly not laws. They're just some statistical thing that they've noticed. Uh, the, it should be the other way around. It should be that, that, yeah. that physicists should have economics envy or finance envy, because in physics, you've got, you know, you're trying to find these, these the, the holy grail of, of uh, equations or models, uh, and the closer you get, the, the sort of less interesting it becomes. Was in economics or finance, the uh, the world is your oyster. You should be able to do any kind of mathematics or statistics that you want, and see if it works or not. But it's become certainly in, in right, economics and finance, it's become you have to do this sort of thing, or else you're you can't you're not taken seriously. Um, I I have to give a a plug for for a for a book. Um, at this point, uh, I can give other plugs later on for other books. But this one is a book by uh, Jim Murray, Professor Jim Murray. It's called Mathematical Biology. You didn't think I was going to plug one of my books, did you? Of course I did. Yeah, absolutely. And, oh, and, and, no. Don't worry, I'll, I'll do that for you later, Paul. Which book? Which one? Machine <laughs> Learning and Applied Mathematics Introduction. Um, no, I was going to uh, Jim Murray's uh, Mathematical Biology. It's a fantastic book. It's been out for decades. Uh, Jim Murray was actually my brother's uh, doctoral supervisor, and mathematical biology was the subject du jour uh, before quant finance took over. Um, my brother had to do, although he's a mathematician as well, he had to do experiments with rats and cut them open and count worms and things. But if you get read his book, not my brother's book, Jim Murray's book, Mathematical Biology, it's in two volumes, it's very expensive, but it shows you the possibilities of mathematical modeling in all sorts of different fields. And I can't help feeling that finance should be more like that subject where different subject, different parts of the finance have different types of models. You can experiment with different things. Why should it all boil down to mean and variance or, or stochastic calculus? So I'd like to see the subject open up a little bit. And, and I think it's, it's very interesting how you know, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. So you've got the new entrants on the block who are essentially the data science uh, cohort, uh, broadly speaking. And so I suppose this area kind of comes in and says, okay, this the answer is somewhere in the data. So we're just going to fit functional forms to the data. And those functional forms will be the correct measures of stuff, whether it's risk or something else. I get the sense that, and maybe I'll test this uh, assumption on you, is that th this kind of approach is a little bit similar to sort of the Garch arch kind of, you know, volatility yesterday's volatility tomorrow kind of argument, whereby you're kind of saying, you know, there's a structure in the data that matters, there's some serial correlation, there's something else, and our, our role is just to identify the structure, but we don't really have to create a bigger world picture. We don't have to create a model for what causes volatility. Or, or what causes shifts in regime other than stories, we don't have to create necessarily mathematical frameworks, but we just have to create a sort of a probabilistic time series forecast of these things. 
And whether we put them in units of, of you know, correlations or whether we use normal distributions or whatever is basically just a, uh, it's, it's a matter of the functional form that we are using to estimate that, that forecast. Yeah, well, the, um, one of the tricks of mathematical modeling is, is understanding, let's, go, let's say, leg scales and time scales. But if you're trying to model a fluid, for example, uh, you don't go down to the molecular level to look at how the molecules of water are bouncing around, but you, you work at the, at the right kind of scale, which happens to be for you know, things like aeroplane design. It happens to be a, a nice human uh, length and time scale. Um, so that's sort of what you're saying there when you're saying we, what is causing volatility, what is causing stocks to bounce around that might be too big a, a problem. Whereas if you just start off from the, the point of view that stocks are bouncing around, what's the best way of representing them? And from that point on, then it becomes quite successful. So that certainly I know people who have in the past tried to come up with models for how things uh, bounce around. Uh, but it, it's, you can do that in many ways, which is the, which is the right one. So... Um, and that also the, the um, as, as well as that the um, oh, I forgot what I was going to say that it was a, a, about the oh what the, so what was the main point of the question again oh, sorry I, I, I went, I've I went, been asking myself that a while actually Paul as, as we kind of contemplating uh, um, I don't think you're back too far and then, and then think, where fine, am I it's heading fine, it's fine you know where are we heading there, there's an ultimately <laughs> good question look I, I suppose I suppose a lot of my point comes back to this right so in in statistics in mathematics there is a structure, there's a functional form of a system. And then I suppose yeah. you're kind of calibrating um, maybe some of the variables in that system to a observed set of data, right? So that's a regression, that's a statistical, that's a kind of metrics. And so typically, at least in financial literature, you will come up with how you think the world works. You think these are the things that drive a particular effect or these are the kind of price risk factors or this is what determines <laughs> risk or whatever. And then you take it to the data and you say, oh, okay, I found some evidence for these or I didn't find evidence for these or I found conditional evidence of these in some states of the world but not all states of the world, et cetera. So there is some yeah. concept of a bigger top-down view of the world, like kind of like what, gee, I wonder what season I'm in. Oh, I'm in spring, therefore the probability of rain is greater. So I'm kind of conditioning on how I think the world works to some extent there. Whereas yeah. in the data science machine learning world, I am attacking the data directly and I'm asking the data to give me kind of micro pulses and micro characteristics of itself and then using those as a way of saying, okay, now I'm going to uh, go and, um, you know, formulate a forecast or something like that. So the critique of that methodology normally is this idea that I don't have any idea of what causes volatility, what season I'm in, what is the bigger picture. I only have an idea of exactly what's happening today as a kind of identification matrix. And I'm kind of using that information probably to just to project the same, to make a naive forecast going forward. Um, and that, that's just one right. criticism, right? Okay, but, the, but things like arch and gauge, you, you know what the functional forms are and you play around with them until you get one that seems to both make sense, sort of fits the data and doesn't do anything too stupid. Um, if you're taking some neural network, you it may fit the data, you don't know whether it makes sense and you certainly don't know whether it's going to do anything stupid. It could do something brilliant, but it might also do something stupid. It's that... It's like that, um, have you seen the film, uh, the AlphaGo movie? <laughs> yes, that's right, of course I have, yeah. 
Yes. Uh, I think they, surely they could have come up with a better title than that. Yeah, so I, can't help. Yeah. That's, that's, I think they should have given that to the AI. The AI would have come up with something better. Yes, so. exactly. But do you remember the bit where the um, the the, the, the uh, machine is coming up with new um, moves in the game of Go? Yes. And the the programmers are scratching their heads and wondering: Is this because there's a mistake in the? You know, it's, the, the, the machine is doing some move that no human, no Go Grandmaster, whatever they're called, uh, ninth damn player would ever do. Is it genius? Is it a mistake? Is it a programming error? Is it a bug? It turns out, in that particular, in those particular cases, it was always a, a genius move by the machine. It could equally have been, if it had been flying a plane, that it could have been a, a dumb move. Uh, so you, you never really know. It's, it's if you've got a, a little bit of mathematics, even something. Something like arch or guard, you can you can see what what sort of things it can do. You, it can't do anything too stupid. So that's a little bit worrying. And then, but, but, but it's an interesting point you make, right? So this notion of transparency, right? And so you know, people have paid a lot of attention to explainability and transparency in these systems yeah. because they're non-linear, because they're estimated purely from data, etc. I think we can kind of remove the idea of an algorithm doing something stupid, quote unquote, by putting guardrails on it. So if it's trading independently of you, it has certain guardrails. It can just kind of, the worst thing it can do is just gradually lose money consistently, but it can't put on a massive bet, for example, or, or in the case of risk forecasting, it kind of has to kind of come come back in again. But I suppose I'm interested in this question of yours, which is uh, this notion of sensibility or trust. I mean, if you had an algorithm like AlphaGo and you had built it to solve some kind of problem and occasionally it would do things that you did not understand, would you trust it any less? Um, well, I'm not sure I trust it much in the first place. I mean, the stuff I, I do with machine learning myself, I get I get caught up in just how much fun it is, and that you'll always get something coming out. That's the thing about machine learning; something always comes out. Whereas if you're doing some other kind of model, a more classical model, you, most of the time nothing comes out of it. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't lead anywhere. But the minute you you just plug some data into some into something, some machine learning technique. Something will come out the other side, pretty much always. It always does when I do it, and sometimes it's obviously rubbish. Sometimes it's just so appealing. You want it to be true, but you know, I'm a, I'm a useless programmer, and I can't believe that anything I do in the machine learning sphere is is going to be useful. But you know, I get I get caught up in it, and that's without any money being involved. The minute you've got throw money at these these sort of things, people are going to be doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm quite nervous that, about this. And you, and you say that you can, put, you can put limits on things so they don't do anything too mad. Um, well, I'm not sure who's going to put the, the limits on, but there'll be uh, people will try and get around the limits. If it's Goldman Sachs, that's what Goldman Sachs do, is they try to get around any rules. That's their whole raison d'etre. Um, no, and, and then you have the, um, the, the uh, the conspiracy theory, but the game theory side of things, which is uh, it's in the interest of these various machines to, uh, to learn to collaborate with each other, to cause all sorts of chaos, even if it's, as you say, on a relatively slow time scale, all sorts of uh, harms can be done. And don't forget, 
ultimately the, the people who are going to be benefiting from, you know, it, it will be humans who benefit from all of from any kind of chaos and humans only need to if, if you're a trader you only need one really good year to be able to retire uh they're not necessarily too concerned about saving the planet and the longevity of the particular institution if they can get a big bonus one year by doing things which are not totally robust or properly tested. No, not, I, sorry, there's so many different angles to this. So many different angles. I think none of them are good. <laughs> sorry. It, it, it's an interesting point. I mean, I think going back from the, from the notion of the, again, the agency issues associated with building ML algorithms that are short-term trader maximizing profits, right? So in the high-frequency space or that kind of you know, shorter-term space, you build trading algorithms today, and the only difference is that you're going to give them slightly more autonomy to be non-linear. But you know, if I build one today that has 250 independent variables and it's an OLS or something very simple, I can, by accident, uh, still come to a point where I'm betting on a particular trend at the beginning or end of the auction that is exacerbating price movements and doing other kinds of things. And if I'm re-estimating my model frequently enough that I'm as dynamic as I could be otherwise. So I think this notion of kind of picking up short-term patterns and then potentially reinforcing it and then having sufficient capital or sufficient algorithms that are doing the same reinforcement of that um, is certainly a concern for regulators and, and probably the exchanges themselves as a way of kind of ensuring correct price discovery. And, and there's a whole lot of conversation here about whether um, these intelligent algorithms would help with price discovery or not, right? Depending on what their objectives would be. Um, but, right. But what I am interested, I suppose, is where, so when we're thinking about risk forecasting then, and let's go back to that notion of risk forecasting on the short term, um, which is kind of the, the topic I think we, we come back to, um, would we then have to incorporate microstructure considerations into that forecasting? So not only obviously fundamentals and news and all that kind of stuff or volumes and, and various things like that, but also something around the likely uh, uh, act, uh, actions of these agents. So, so for example, if we're trying to if we're forecasting a big jump in a spike in a particular variable or a particular price in tomorrow's morning open, would we be forecasting that because we've observed some kind of clandestine or otherwise algorithm actions in the day before? Do you think that? Yeah, I think that, I think that's that's perfectly valid. If you've got the data, and ideally, one would put in a little bit of common sense somewhere in the modeling before throwing it at the. Um, at, 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 sorry, the data of some, some algorithm. Um, it, it's, it's no different from any walk of life, any, any business decision you make. You know, if I do this, what is, my, what is the uh, effect going to be on some competitor? How are they going to respond to it? So uh, all of these things you can throw into the mix. I, I just like to see a little bit, I'd like to see more applied mathematicians involved in the, um, in the process, not just computer scientists. One thing that's really annoying is you keep, you know, you read the, the, the books on machine learning and they'll throw in some piece of jargon and you, you, you hunt down what the jargon is and you, you find it's, it's some applied math technique from a, you know, 80 years ago. And you think, why on earth have they given it a new name? Is it possibly because they don't know what has been done in other fields? <laughs> it's, it's, the whole of statistics is being rebranded as machine learning now as well, which is very strange. Well, I think it's fair to say machine learning or any kind of learning or AI have become holding pattern terms. 
which basically annoys everybody. It annoys the people like once who are like, okay, I don't understand what you're referring to. And it annoys the actual genuine data scientists who are like, I actually know what these algorithms do and that's not what you're doing. So this right. is kind of a, um, I suppose there's a strong business case at the moment around uh, solving all potential problems in a business using data because it's seen to be the kind of, um, you either do things with data and modeling or you die type of uh, threat. Well, it's, it's, um, it's just marketing. It's just marketing. Yeah. It's, it's like if you, if you want to, um, to, to um, you're in a university and you're, you're studying the life cycle of squirrels, then you have to, you have to have a, um, in your grant proposal, you have to mention uh, climate change, the impact of climate change <laughs> on the life cycle of squirrels. So it's, it's like that with um, machine learning. I think the good news is possibly that nobody's actually doing any machine learning, but it's all, um, it's just marketing. Well, well, but this is a beautiful thing. If you have a hundred models, a hundred firms, two will get it right. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's the kind of beautiful thing about the, the problem space is so uncertain in terms of forecasting returns, for example, that you're bound to have lucky hits on the right-hand side distribution. Oh, yeah. And yes. I suppose in that case, you will have those being put up in the Harvard Business Review saying the next generation of asset managers here, look, we've generated X percentage a year, and uh, that's because we're extremely good and not lucky. And so I think, uh, yeah, it, it's, 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 I mean, you can see the, the classic hype cycle in this particular case about ML machine learning. But I think for me, certainly, and maybe for people like you and others, we, we want to see the world being more, let's say, scientific or structured in the way that it deals with problems or uncertainty and being curious about new methodologies and new ways of doing that. And so for me, I suppose what I get excited about machine learning is not obviously the hype stuff, but maybe it will show me something I haven't seen before. Maybe it will play those moves like it did in AlphaGo that I wouldn't have seen. And I'll get inspired from that and I'll learn from that. It'll kind of move me forward rather than kind of reflecting my own intuition just scaled to the nth degree. I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure whether I like bandwagons, though. Everybody moving in the same direction. I think that's kind of um, depressing that human beings are like that. That's, I think that's probably the most depressing aspect of machine learning is that eventually every child is going to have to become a programmer. That, that's, the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the big question. That, that's the only question, I'm, that I think, is in 10, 20 years' time, are programmers going to be the people who are, you know, are they going to be the, the top of the, the, um, the, the food chain or are they going to, going to be so many of them that they're at the bottom of the food chain and actually it's more the, the intuitively... <laughs> empathetic people are going to be at the top i don't know do, do do we do we um do you have children i do i do and are your children becoming programmers uh no are they learning? i, I How have, old are I they? have they're, they're, they're nine and five i have taught okay. the older one some um uh sort of basic programming but i think what's interesting is the way they teach that kids of that age programming is basically just about dissecting problems into components parts, and so it's really no more difficult than guiding a uh, I don't know a a robot through voice instruction through a maze like go left, go right, go forward, yes. etc. So in that context, I find it quite general in educational terms. I mean, going back to your point about is this the future? I, I think what I find fascinating is that the current generation of data scientists. Uh, have this strong DNA element, which is enablement. 
That's why you see enormous amounts of, I think, platforms and tools and other things being built out around the world to quote unquote enable other people's content. And it's almost like there's almost like critical mass of now enablement tools and probably much less content, content actually being produced. But what I find interesting is that in time, if you follow the same thread through, then you get to a point where you, people have been so incredibly enabled that they don't need to learn a programming language because they have a little helper robot that helps them put together a programming piece of code from color tiles or whatever. Like they don't, they don't need to touch the, the, the sand particles in some sense. They're working with large um, stylized, but large Lego blocks. In the same way that Python has become so popular and everybody shared their code and their, and their, uh, you know, their, their, their bits and pieces. So now you go to GitHub and you pick up something that someone else wrote. Sure, it may not be exactly what you're looking for, but you know, let's say it gets you 80% of the way there quicker. So I, I can see the world moving that way, in which case very few people actually understand what the sand particles actually do. And everybody will be kind of, quote unquote, masters of the Lego blocks. If I can put that analogy there. Yes, indeed. But the, the, the question is, uh, uh, what basic knowledge do we really need uh, and why might we need it? For example, you know, when the apocalypse comes, uh, the, you know, the, the, do we need, what, what do we actually need to be able to do? Programming is probably not going to be much use. Do we need to be, well, to, to building be, to a be fire? Fair, not much, maybe very much use, because I think the way you've defined it is like, like you know, um, the apocalypse is uh, by definition, um, you know, kind of the end. But look, it's a really good point. I, it, I, I've taught university lectures in London and I've really enjoyed teaching. And I think with machine learning, increasingly um, the uh, ability for us to permeate potential solutions to problems or potential views of the world, or potential news in the case of fake news or whatever, I think what we need to do is actually strengthen our citizens and each other, our families or whatever, uh, to be a bit more um, kind of, I suppose, rationally, uh, our rational thinking and our decision-making skills, to be a lot more factual, to be a lot more discerning, to be a lot more demanding. So when we receive a piece of information, we don't take it on board because it, it confirms our previous biases or because it makes us feel emotionally anxious or whatever. It kind of sneaks in under our guard in different ways, but we kind of demand that piece of reporting news information to have that backup or a reasonable kind of causation or a reasonable argument behind it. And those skill sets I see as being absolutely pivotal, for example, for people that produce these models and work with data. So they, when they created the machine learning data, as you say, which is fun, they can look at it and, um, and go, wow, do I really believe this? Have I really learned something about the world here? Right. Do, do we really want everybody to be so rational? Doesn't that sound a little bit boring? Um, do we want, the, we want the right people to be rational or we want people, the right people to be rational at the right times, I think. Uh, the rest of the we want, so I'm just thinking from a business perspective, we want people who are you know, perhaps irrational, emotional, and we can use advertising to sell stuff. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I think rationality is overrated, I think. Oh, it's, it's nice to... There's a wonderful movie called Equilibrium, Paul. Have you ever seen it? Uh, no. It's, um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit action-y. It's got Christian Bale, et cetera, et cetera. But the main premise of it is that it, there's a futuristic, dystopian futuristic world, I might add, that has no emotions. And it's represented by the film as something bad. And then there's the heroes of the story learn emotion. They, they get, as you say kind of crazy, sometimes irrational, et cetera. So there's a clear tilt in, in, in the way the film is. But actually, if you watch it at the beginning, there's a sense by which the people who are perfectly 
rational are sitting there doing yoga, meditating, you know, spiritual enlightenment. There's all this kind of sway of activity that they're engaging in, which means that they're not running around hollering and laughter and patting each other back and having big nights out. But there is an existence there. There is a kind of an interesting existence there. So I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I think if you ever watch daytime TV, you quickly get a sense by which you're not sure that you want people to be any more emotional than they already are. I see. Hey, are you seriously saying that you'd rather do yoga than go on a big night out? <laughs> that's what. That's the message I'm getting. <laughs> wow, you put me on the spot. Um, uh, no, no, I, I'm certainly not. Uh, but I'm merely kind of raising the notion that um, there are other ways for our collective society to to exist. And you're right, rationality and logic is not the only tools that we have of understanding and observing uh, the world. Um, but I, I feel like they are incredibly powerful tools. And, um, and, and on the whole, we should probably observe them a bit more than we are globally. I, I find myself, I find myself talking to myself in a sense that, that I, sometimes I'm rational, sometimes I'm irrational. Often I will, if I'm being irrational, well, either way, I will ask myself, am I being rational? Okay, Paul, you're not being rational, are you? No, I'm not. I confess I'm not being rational. But hey, do you really want to be rational at this point? You know what? No, I don't. I'm going to carry on being irrational. So I, I, I sort of have this switch where I can force myself to be rational. It's like a car. It's like one of those, those what's the, the thing? You know, the, um, I don't have a car with one of these buttons. The, the, the um, what's it called? Do you watch, do you watch the, the Grand Tour? They're always yes. talking about switching off the, the thing. What's it called? Oh, traction control. Traction control, right, of course. That's it. I have a traction control button. And sometimes and, and, it's on, sometimes but, it's off. But, but I, think, I, I think there's a really interesting intersection. I'm going to bring it back to AI here for a second or the ideal of AI, which is AI and creativity, where, you know, there's this notion of, I was reading an interesting article recently about the idea of how to solve problems, is that too many of the current um, algorithms or have very direct objective functions. So I want to solve problem A in a very direct way. So I, I, there's a castle, I want to go inside the castle, there's a moat around the castle, so I want to get as close to the castle as possible. So I drive straight up to the edge of the moat and I'm inch by inch, I, I get the closest possibly I can to the center of the castle. Whereas there's this idea that if you let the algorithm so-called explore spaces that are not direct solutions to the problem, then you can end up in a place where you knock over a tree that creates a bridge that you walk over into the center of the castle. And so this idea of kind of, um, as you say, letting yourself, either we define it as irrationality or we define it as kind of letting your mind wander into creative, seemingly unrelated spaces and then coming back ultimately to the, to the problem space, which is how you, I think you get the magic where you have multiple sciences come together to solve a problem and you have a solution from a completely different science being pulled into somewhere else. Right. Yeah. Yes, I, I have a, a large part of me that isn't about solving things, though a large part of me is about exploring the, the, um, the environment just to have fun or to some extent, how can I explore this environment to cause some trouble? Uh, <laughs> and, and can I do the exact opposite of what I'm supposed to be doing? And do they actually know I'm, I'm going to do, can they predict that I'm going to do the exact opposite of what I'm supposed to do, which would be really annoying? Uh, that's the kind of way I think of these things. So, so where, where do you think this whole AI machine learning path that we're currently on around the world will take us as a society? 
well, I think it's going to take over all sorts of things. It's going to make so many things non-transparent. I think it'll be used absolutely everywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it will, it will be very successful, but it will be kind of depressing. Um, yeah, I mean, lots of things that, uh, about the modern world are depressing. Um, you know, the internet is depressing, isn't it? It was not the information superhighway it used to be called years and years and decades ago. Um, and now it's just a place where people troll each other and, and scream abuse. And if you have a slightly different opinion from you get start flame wars and, you know, on, on Twitter. Um, so it's depressing. So I'm sure whatever happens, it'll happen far too quickly and it will be depressing. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So, so what, let, let, let me pick up a couple of points here. So that's, I mean, th this is a central message of enablement. It says that the superhighway enables people to drive their cars, but how they drive it and how many accidents they cause and how many times they honk at each other is nothing to do with the highway, right? So the highway is just a road. And yeah. in the same kind of way, you're right. I think we built that incredible infrastructure to enable people with purpose or will to use it for whatever purpose they wish. And we've tried to, I mean, I think there are certain efforts to sort of control that. And I think there's some points of evidence where technology companies are trying to be selective about the technologies they release. Um, but there's a good example of what was that um, fake news uh, software recently that was released. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, the one that's developed by OpenAI. Um, and it's basically the idea was that it was able to take a piece of news and, um, or let's say a sentence, and create a short snippet of news underneath it that would sound very credible, but had no basis for reality. Have you seen that before? I, I can imagine. I've seen these, um, uh, the, the putting people's faces on other videos. That's, that's, that's quite that's, impressive. That's, that's deep fakes, yeah. And, deep fakes, yes. And, and what's interesting yeah. about, about both the news and, and the visual elements of it is that clearly this idea of mimicry and that we're able to mimic human behavior or human information sets using technology, just as we're able to mimic music and art and other things, because machine learning is the ultimate mimic, right? It's the ultimate um, copier of, of these things. doesn't mean that it kind of creates new content. It just kind of takes it together in a slightly different formation. So what I find interesting is that that organization of OpenAI did not release their software to begin with. And then I think a number of months later, if not slightly later, a number of other groups around the world uh, replicated it and then eventually released it, um, which means that they had to release it. So if you think about a biological system that is humanity, what we've created is this incredible kind of nervous system that connects all these different parts of our collective civilization called the internet, you know, the information technology through media, through voice, etc. And now I suppose we're trialing the little viruses that can start to run around the world and try to develop little antidotes for them. I, I, I'm a slightly more optimistic on this than you in the context that I think Ultimately, we as humans have a certain resilience. We have really good instincts about how to resist certain things. Um, but I do feel like with all things technology and data, we're at a point where we're going to take two steps forward and probably take a step back when we have a failure or some you know, giant screw up um, that kind of happens in the AI field just as we've done many times before. But it's, ha it's all happening too quickly. You won't get, you, 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 yeah, something bad will happen and you won't be able to recover from it. But human beings are basically nasty, spiteful, envious, generally unpleasant creatures, I would say, you know, to a first approximation. I know I am, certainly. I'm, I'm, you know, 
and my wife. Gosh, you should see my wife. Um, <laughs> you, you realize this, this, this podcast is going to go out to the world. <laughs> she's, I'm just saying. She, she, yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's, let, yeah, let's not go there. But, it, but, but the, it's only the meeting people face-to-face, I suspect, that in previous centuries has stopped people, stopped the, this, this side of people coming out. As we meet less face-to-face, it's just the, the nasty side is just going to just let rip and it's going to be... And, and people can use technology to, um, to, to take advantage of that, so that they will. No, it's, it's going to be very unpleasant, very unpleasant. Sorry. No, no, it, I'm sure you're a really nice person, but... These are all very rational uh, conclusions. And I think, I think they... they they uh, point out um, some really good points, uh, especially there's a one that, another wonderful book. See, I'm the, I'm the one doing all the book plugs, it seems now. But um, don't ask me the author of this book, but it's called Debt. And I really apologize for the author because it's one of the best books I've read, but I'm horrible with names. And it basically makes this point that, that debt or bartering or trade or whatever has never been kind of a linear process in, in, our, in our humanity. And that most of the time, trade or bartering was a way of avoiding conflict between neighboring tribes and neighboring people, et cetera, because the natural... Um, behavior, as you pointed out, was be to, to to confrontation and to maybe to fight and and to get land or resources from each other. So trading, bartering, and the whole exchange of goods had to be face to face. So people came out of their camps, they they turned face to face, they shook each other's hands, they uh, went through a certain ritual, they got drunk together, they smoked something together, whatever it was, and through that kind of interpersonal connection, they were able to do trading and AK and kill each other as well. Um, so you, you certainly make a good point, which is that at the moment you can act without consequence, thanks to certain so, so technologies, um, and uh, because of these small little adjustments in technologies, it really rapidly changes the way people communicate with one another. Um, the, the great example, for example, is the like button. Um, when oh yeah, add, yes. When they added the like button to things, suddenly people's communication changed from "Here's something I did today" to imagining standing in front of an audience of thousands of people going, I need to produce something for you all. And so I think that they actually did studies on the fact that anger and certain psychological uh, behaviors carry better with large groups of people uh, in terms of like, you know, they, they kind of affect them all. So it's more effective for you to um, criticize or to be in anger when you're projecting to large groups of people. They're more likely to get retweeted. They're more likely to to get likes, to to get approvals, et cetera, than, than positive messages, things like that. And yeah, the, 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 the impact on one's, on one's psyche, one's emotions of a like from a person you've never met, you know nothing about and will never meet, is quite frankly sick. I, I don't use social media. I, ju- I just use wilmoth.com. That's the only place I'm on the internet. But I, I see it all around me, people just, just chasing those likes. And they, the, 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 if they don't get liked, if, if you don't get liked... It can ruin your, you know, your week. That is, that's wrong. And, and I think, I think they're, they're, they're kind of now catching up to that. So they're kind of now making adjustments. Going back to this notion of predicting. When you say, well, they, they, they. Well, well, they, I mean, Instagram, I think was. The exactly. But one. they, they shouldn't have to do that. I mean, they should be, people should either be smart enough not to go anywhere near Instagram, et cetera, um, or just, you know, man up or something, whatever the, the politically <laughs> correct phrase that you can. Yeah, maybe not matter, but but yeah, this notion of being sturdier psychologically, I think, was my point about the rationality 
idea and then kind of using different logic for that. But I mean, going back to this notion of predictive analytics, which is how people in marketing fields now have a new set of tools called AI. And if they have the right data sets, I think they can certainly, um, let's say, predict or, or lock into um, these type of addictive behaviors. And I think that there is a kind of a societal uh, threat in some senses that the same predictive behaviors that casinos for many generations have used to keep people gambling um, in an addictive way, you know, with certain smells, certain sounds, certain type of stimuli can now be kind of rolled out in a much broader sense to society rather being contained in very specific locations. And so th these kinds of ideas, I think, this idea of predictive analytics and the nudge idea or the manipulation on a large-scale idea is really one of the concerning elements of, of, of the, the level of tools that we're developing and their potential use, I think. Yeah, yeah, but if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> Be the master manipulator, Paul. Yeah, I, yes. I, I'm looking forward to you putting a like button on wilmot.com. I'd like to see that. Well, th that's a that's a good that's a good point because when Instagram or whatever look into the, the the effect of like buttons, are they really? What are the chances of them doing it from a from a, an altruistic perspective? And what are the chances of thinking, well, it's some game we're playing here. Let's we've got to think a few moves ahead um, because because I've I on Wilmot.com, for example. I am forever telling, having, having these conversations with myself about things like freedom of speech, about what people can say. And yes, I put, I'm one of the good guys. <laughs> I've put myself in the position of different people all day long trying to think of what will the impact of this be. Okay, fine. I want people to buy my books and, and, and uh, take the CQF, etc. But I'm always trying to think of the downside of things and you know the, the, the psychological downside of things. There's, there's one guy on, on Wilmot.com. This, this is a, a sad story, but it's, it's a story about, uh, about um, human beings and also the internet. There's, there's one person on Wilmot.com who is, I suspect, is schizophrenic. But this is a sort of serious point. Um, Obviously, he doesn't know he's schizophrenic, um, but and I'm convinced that this person, convinced that this person, that the, the messages, the things he writes, um, he's being absolutely genuine for all sorts of reasons. Anyway, so I, I think, how am I going to deal with this person? Some people said, "Oh, just ban him because um, he could be you know, a bit disruptive." What I do, on the other hand, is I, I think about this for a while. Then I go to, there's a, there's a forum. It's probably something like schizophrenia.com. It's something like that. I go to a forum to ask for advice. I join this forum about schizophrenia to ask for advice. What can I do about this person on my forum? I post something and immediately I get trolled by all these other people on the forum, on the schizophrenia forum, because I'm, I'm using the wrong language. There's me going in, trying to be nice to somebody who's clearly in pain and I get, to, I get trolled. So that, that's kind of the modern world for you in a, in a nutshell. Well, I mean, but I, th I think this notion of tribalism or groups, which is probably one of the reasons that happens out of this, is certainly exacerbated by this idea. Um, but I think it, it's something that is, as you say, is primal in our nature. 
There was a, another interesting video, which is not quite as serious as yours, but I think makes that tribalism point very similarly. There was a, um, there's an online game called Eve. It's a very large-scale sci-fi game where you know tens of 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people play. And they have these occasionally these very large wars that they have with each other and incredibly political affairs whereby, you know, um, there's a sort of a leader that emerges of each of these factions and they make all sorts of clandestine deals with each other by meeting up in real life for coffees and talking about what they're going to do in the game and then betraying each other and then creating these big mass groups, bullying uh, members into fighting or not fighting. But these, these activities are, are, if anywhere, as you said, these things are enabled or there's a, there's a place given for them. And I think the only kind of question that we want to ask ourselves is when we think about children or the next generation, absolutely cyberbullying is an issue, absolutely, um, you know, appropriateness of content and, and how people talk to each other's discourses is, is an issue. There's an interesting question about anonymity because I think anonymity is one of those things that we demand because we say uh, that's my rights, my liberal rights to be anonymous. But equally, anonymity means uh, exactly the kind of behavior you're talking about, which is that you, you have... You don't have to fess up. You, you can shout at somebody abuse and they never know who you are. There's no, re, there's no response. There's no repercussions because you're anonymous, right? And so I, I do feel like that there, there's an interesting conflict there is, is that you kind of, some of the kind of subtleties around, around these topics. Well, for 50, 15 years, I think, on Wilmot.com, we've insisted on people uh, signing up with work or university or basically traceable email addresses because of a lot of trolling that we had. 15 years ago. Um, and so I know who everybody is. I don't tell anybody. I'm not going to do that. But if, if somebody does something illegal and the police come knocking on my door, I'm going to throw them under a bus, these people. Um, but they know that I know who they are. And I think that's, that's very important that ultimately if they do something illegal, then they can be, um, they can be chased and caught. I did once get interviewed by what they called uh, Transparency International, I think they're called, that there's some group campaigning for transparency in, in public affairs. And I did, they were asking me for advice on what, now this is years and years ago, what about the internet um, trolling, et cetera. And I said to them, well, every politician, before they become a, a politician, they've got to give a list of, of um, all of their, their, their usernames, all of their online accounts, you know, they're not going to be made public. They can still stay anonymous, but we have to. It, it has to be listed somewhere what these accounts are, just in case. And of course, I believe that now that the, the same has happened with with with, um, with green cards in America. If you're flying for a, a green card, you have to give all of your. I think this is true. Uh, your your, your uh, social media names, which I think is is fantastic. When people people join to my website, I always say, please use a, a, don't use your real name just in case you say something stupid, but I need to know who you are. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, there's an interesting link here as well, this idea of right to be forgotten. And there's, again, this kind of interesting gray area where you say anonymity, absolute anonymity is not helpful for the purposes that we said. It's potentially means that you don't, not held accountable, but equally there's some limits to how long your, uh, your stupid comments should be kept on record or anything dumb that you do, any pictures you post, right? Yeah. Um, yes. And so there's a kind of, a, you know, there's a, there's a help, helpful thing. And, and what I find interesting about technology is that technology doesn't deal in normally in grays. It kind of deals with absolutes. And so, you know, you've got this existing 
society that, that deals with all these problems in different kinds of ways, moderates them in a very kind of organic, responsive, you know, feedback kind of mechanism way. Uh, whereas I think, you know, when we're playing with some of these technologies, they just take one idea and then they push it to the nth degree. And of course we go, wow, that, that's just completely imbalanced. So we need to kind of bring that back and then we go off on the next tangent and then kind of push that to the nth degree and then kind of see what happens. For example, here's a cool um, thought and then I, I think we should probably wrap it up and leave you to get back to beautiful Hawaii as well. So if, if I write a model uh, of a particular type of human behavior, if I'm forecasting the probability that you will have a, a big lunch today, um, for example, um, I can put in lots of data about you, personal data, lots of other kinds of background data. Um, so I can put in lots of data about you, lots of kind of personal data about you. Um, and I can have, let's say, an R squared as a measure of, let's say, 70% probability that you know, my model is right in terms of forecasting or explaining what you do in, your, in this particular action. Um, what I always found interesting is that that's a kind of a large-scale statistical outcome. And let's say that's a true model and, and let's ignore estimation errors for a moment. Um, does that mean that free will is that 30%? Does that mean that there's just a kind of residual element? And then if we kind of continue to walk down this road when we are modeling personal behaviors or we're forecasting personal actions for marketing or other purposes, are we also, by reference, kind of saying something about free will and how people are actually able to choose decisions and how they actually make decisions? You, you sound almost French. <laughs> you say things like this. Sartre is undeniable. I mean, he's wonderful. Um, and I did work for AXA at some point, so, you know. There's, there's, obviously, you know the, the, the black swan by Nassim Taleb. Of course, yeah. Do you know, do you know the blank swan by Eliash? Uh, no. He's, he, he wrote this book, very, very, very thick book. Um, he's he's um, French Lebanese. He's in derivatives. Um, he has a software company, but he's also very philosophical. So he he wrote a, a, a something. It's called the Blank Swan, um, and it's sort of the other side of the coin from the from the Black Swan. I, I'm I'm stumbling quite a bit here because I'll explain. He 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 wasn't sure whether this this um, book. Um, was suitable for publication. I, I encouraged him, um, but he said, "Take it, take a take a look at it, and tell me what you think." It's it's in five parts. He said, "I understand if you don't get as far as part five, right? because part five is really you do have to be French to understand part five. It's very deep philosophical stuff. Uh, part four you may struggle with. Okay, part three you'll probably get to part three. Fine, you know, with patience, you may lose interest, but you, you can—it's understandable. Part two is quite straightforward. Part part one is um, is is a piece of cake. You know, a child can understand part one. Um, I couldn't understand the preface. <laughs> it was that French. Go. So uh, yeah, I don't know why I mentioned that, but there you go. Well, I um, mean, but, uh, uh, the French have a lot to to add to to our, answer for exactly answer for and to add to our uh, well-being. But on that wonderful note, um, thank you so much for your time today, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. All right. So you promote the books then? Ah, absolutely, of course. Well, 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 Good man. See, it's a best. It's 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 a natural. Any library, any quantitative library, should have uh, have Paul Wilmot uh, in it, okay. without a doubt. Thank you, Paul. Okay. Aloha. <laughs> <laughs>